It's time for Truth, a ministry of Truth Family Bible Church in Middleton, Idaho. It's time for Truth exists to glorify God through the edification of His saints in our local church and for the benefit of the church around the world. I'm your host, Pastor Danny Steinmeier, and I am joined in studio with my friend and fellow elder at TFBC, Jim Berg. Well, greetings, everyone. Thank you once again for joining us on the podcast. We are in the midst of a series within a series, and we're going to jump right into uh, our continuing final uh, examination of questions for Brett Kendall. Uh, Brett, uh, welcome back to the podcast once more. Thanks again for having me. Well, we are making good progress, but it is taking time, which we uh, I think is a good thing. We are uh, breaking these up into a little bit more bite-sized pieces. Uh, the first two were a little over an hour. This one will be uh, a fair bit shorter as we try to bring our questions of practical theology for one who is uh, looking to be a, uh, a shepherd of, of God's flock. And so we will jump back into the line of questioning. We are in a, a section talking about uh, the the role of the the elders and the role of the elders in the church. And so, Jim, would you lead us off with our next question for Brett? Yeah, and these are important, so I think it's good to take your time and make sure we answer these correctly. But I think it's really, as an elder, or how do you view the elders should lead the local congregation? Well, uh, to lead, I think, effectively is you got to, first of all, you got to get to know the people. Um, you, you know, you... When you're preaching, you apply the truth specifically to your local congregation and what they're dealing with. Um, that's kind of the problem that I have with, uh, you know, remote church in terms of, um, you know, the, the pastor on the screen. They they don't know the, the local congregation. So I think first and foremost, in terms of uh, how an elder leads the congregation, they need to get to know the the, the, the people. Um, now in terms of what their specific jobs are to do, it's to pray and to minister the word of God. And, you know, those are, those are two main categories. And I can't, again, I can't un uh, underestimate the, the, um, the job of pray for the congregation. You need the, you need God to work in the hearts of the people, you know, you, you can do whatever you can do as uh, an elder. Um, you know, you can you can teach, but if God, the Holy Spirit is not working in the hearts of the people, it's not going to do um, in anything. Um, so we we need to we need to pray for the people. But the other thing is that we're called in Scripture to minister the word. It's not your ministry. It's not all about you. It's not, you know, the me show. It's, it's ministry of the word, of the word of God, of the Bible. That's your, that's your, that's your main job is to minister the word of God. Now we do that by, um, scripture de de describes it as shepherding. You know, we shepherd the flock. It's not, um, me on high and, you know, on some sort of ivory tower that we, you know, um, that we proclaim, uh, the scripture to the unwashed masses and don't have anything to do with them. 
Um, no, it's shepherding. A shepherd gets in um, dirty with the sheep. Um, they get um, there's a there's a physical interaction with the sheep. They they know the sheep and the sheep know their voice. And the other thing, um, according to First Timothy uh, five, is they rule. They there's general oversight in the church. They have legitimate authority that they exercise um, within the church. They're not just uh, a figurehead. Um, they're not just a cruise director. Um, they have legitimate authority and when they proclaim the word of God, um, uh, correctly, of course, um, not with their own opinions, but what it, what it really means, what it really says, they, they're, they're transmitting that authority, um, that the people need to submit to, um, the authority of the word of God. And they, they do this in the means of practical discipleship. Um, you know, they're meeting with people. Um, I do a lot of biblical counseling, so um, I get to do this, interact with people, um, disciple them. Uh, biblical counseling is just a fancy term for discipleship. That, that's all I do. Um, I customize the discipleship based on what issues they have, um, but it's just, it's just Bible study, and I bring to bear what the scripture says, and that's what, um, that's what, that's what, that's what the jobs of an elder should be of the congregation. Good. Well, one of the things I have a real good sense of from you, but uh, we'll just ask it formally here. Um, how do you view the importance of the local church? Well, uh, the statement that I've used is that it's the, the meeting of the church is the most important meeting in all of history, and it occurs every week. Um, and, and I've mentioned it before that Jesus... Christ loves the church. It's not, so should we not? Should we not love the church just like Jesus Christ loves the church? Um, of course we should. It's the most important meeting in all of history. That should be pr prioritized above everything else. Um, we, we should love to be with the people of God. We should love to worship God. We should love to be um, in church. I mean, we should love the church. That's a great answer. So you talked about counseling and discipleship. Now let's go a little bit further to individual and corporate purposes for church discipline. And how do you view discipline different from discipleship? Yeah, discipline is really the process um, that we go through. Um, it, it, I believe it is a form of discipleship in the sense that um, we're showing the person what the scripture talks about and trying to get them to repent. Now, I don't believe that church discipline is punitive. You know, the uh, civil magistrate does a punitive um, punishment. Um, they wield the sword. We do not. So church discipline is not punitive. Um, we can um, excommunicate um uh, somebody that's under church dis discipline when they get to that step. Um, but it's not punitive. It's even in that regard, it is for restoration. We give them over to Satan. Why? For them to ultimately repent and be restored back to the church. So from an individual perspective, 
the benefit, the purpose of church discipline is for their repentance. Obviously, we want them to repent. Ultimately, it's for restoration back to um, the body, uh, back to the people that they offended. And also, I think that there is rest- restitution when there is restitution that's called for. You know, if somebody stole, um, you know, a hundred bucks from uh, another person in the church and, um, you know, church discipline started, um, the person confronted the person, eventually maybe the elders got involved and, 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 uh, they did repent. There was a repentance, um, for that stealing, but there's still restitution that needs to happen. They need to give the hundred bucks back. Um, so from an individual perspective that is involved in terms of the corporate, uh, church discipline, obviously the first part of church discipline process is private. Um, it's, you know, it's not a place to gossip to other people. Um, and, and by, by and large, the, the way the scripture defines it, describes it, that should be, you know, most of the cases you should never hear about, uh, most of the cases that involve, uh, church discipline. Um, but if it does advance beyond that, and there is uh, a public excommunication that happens, it's for the protection of the other believers. Um, you know, if you excommunicate a person, it's to show them that um, they did something sinful that they did not repent of, and there is uh, re- protection on the rest of the people um, that are involved um, in the in the congregation. And it's also a warning to the congregation to not do the same thing. Because if the church takes church discipline seriously as it should, that means, whoa, to the rest of the people, whoa, they take sin seriously. Like if I do this and I don't repent of this, they're going to do, they're possibly going to do the same thing to me. They will do the same thing to me because they did it to somebody else. Um, So it's a warning to them. Good. All right, moving into some uh, other theological matters here as we begin to bring this uh, to a close. A few questions in these areas. Uh, do you have a particular view of eschatology, uh, such as pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, uh, pan-mill? Uh, if, and if so, how important do you view your position, and how do you relate to other positions and people who hold other positions who disagree with you? And then a follow-up to that is if you have a position, how do you relate it to our position of the, the church uh, of confessional or historic eschatology, wherein we don't have a particular one that is, um, uh, that is stated for the church? It, it, it's a historic eschatology as opposed to uh, one of these eschatological theological positions. Would you kind of talk about that? Yeah, I think first and foremost, we need to keep in mind that in essential issues, there should be unity. Um, in secondary issues, there should be charity. So, uh, you know, I put eschatology as a secondary issue. Therefore, you should handle it with charity, with love, with people that disagree with you. It is a secondary issue. Um, I've studied eschatology um, a lot, and there is uh, problems with all the views. Um, and, um, so we should keep that in mind. We should be open about hearing about other scriptures, 
um, that may relate to an eschatological view. Um, my, uh, uh, I guess formal view, if you want to call it that, um, is, um, kind of, kind of in a, uh, if you want to mix it, it's kind of like in a post mail all mail type of mix. Um, I don't have, uh, a hardcore view on that. I coined my own term called the Royal optimism, um, because it's so dif difficult, um, there is basically three things that I can show strong evidence and prove from scripture re regarding uh, eschatology. Uh, one is that Christ is imminent in his return, um, that uh, he can come back at any time, and he doesn't need um, uh, the world to jump through various hoops for him to do that. Um he can, he can absolutely do that. The other thing, um, speaking of Royal is, um, in Colossians, three, oh, sorry, Colossians one 13, it says this, and he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. And in some sense, the kingdom is now, um, it's present, um, uh, in, in whether there'll be a future physical kingdom or not, uh, um, I'm not sure of, but in some sense there is a kingdom now, um, because why? Because that's in the present tense and it talks about us being transferred into to the kingdom when we're saved. So, uh, Royal. It's talking about the kingdom. The other one is in Matthew 16, 18, talking about uh, the optimism. Um, it says, it says, and I also pray that you, uh, that you, that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. And here's the critical part and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So the church will not be ultimately defeated. There is victory in the church. And we see that we see that the influence of the gospel, um, the expansion of the church, um, throughout church history, right? There was only a handful of believers in Jesus Christ in that first century. And now there is 2 billion professing Christians. I know that not all of them are regenerate, but you can see the dramatic increase over the years between a handful of believers to a tremendous amount of believers. So we can learn from that, that, oh, there is optimism in terms of church history. There is the dramatic influence of the gospel in the world. There is the expansion of the church. There is more believers um, as it goes out uh, worldwide. All right, let's transition on to baptism. So give us your views of household baptism versus believer's baptism, and obviously how that relates to the TFBC, our, our statement of faith, our position on baptism, as well as the London Baptist Confession of 1689. 
Well, you know, uh, my personal view is that I hold to a more of a household baptism uh, perspective. Um, I want to make it clear that it's not baptismal regeneration. Um, actually, there's various denominations that believe baptismal regeneration for household baptism. But there's also uh, believer's baptism that people, denominations that hold to a baptismal regeneration. So I don't think it is. Um, I don't believe it is at all. We, we are not saved by partaking in baptism. So in terms of our household, they're not uh, members of our household. Uh, they may not have a profession of faith. They're not faith. They're not automatically saved um, by being baptized. So uh, first and foremost, um, there's no baptismal regeneration at all. Um, it is not commanded in Scripture. Um, I can't find um, an explicit command anywhere in Scripture. Therefore, I'm not going to say that it's commanded um, by God. Um, but uh, believer's baptism is. Um, when you become saved, um, you absolutely need to be baptized. It, it's commanded um, by Jesus Christ. So I see that clearly. So uh, believers, bap believers that become people that become converts, that become believers, absolutely are commanded to be baptized. And now I don't have any agenda for household baptism. Um, you know, whether it's one at a time, believers baptism, or all at once, you know, household baptism, the goal is the, the, the same. Um, we want all of our kids to be saved. Um, and um, in terms of TF TFBC specifically, um, since I don't believe household baptism is commanded in Scripture, then, then of course I respect this church's position on baptism. Good, thank you. And uh, again, if you have any further follow-up questions on, on any of that, if you have um, more that you want to know from Brett, you feel free to uh, reach out to him. We've had uh, other conversations further on this subject with him, and uh, are, are grateful for him and uh, and, and affirm him in this uh, mm -hmm. in his view uh, as well, and, and appreciate him and and his willingness to um, really be in submission. He's talked about that his his understanding of being in submissive. Submission to the view and the teaching and the documents of uh, Truth Family Bible Church and uh, can do so in good faith uh, in terms of teaching and moving forward in, uh, in our church. And again, if you have further questions, please feel free to ask Brett on that. Uh, and then uh, really our, our last question for today is, would you just tell us about your view of psychology, integration, and biblical counseling? Uh, you already mentioned that you do biblical counseling and wanted to uh, give you an opportunity to kind of speak to why you think that's important, what's the difference, uh, and just what uh, how you would view those things. Yeah, the you know obviously I agree with biblical counseling. Um, psychology is on the far end of the spectrum. You know, if you have various spectrums, uh, integration is kind of combining biblical principles with psychology. And the problem with psychology and integration is. Um, where the source of power to change comes from. In psychology and real, really in integration, the power to change comes from yourself. There's a lot of self-help. Um, you can change yourself. Um, 
And the, the way I see it in scripture and why I agree with biblical counseling is you can't change yourself. First and foremost, you have to be justified. You have to be saved um, to get uh, the Holy Spirit in you. Um, because if you don't, you can't change without the Holy Spirit. I mean, you can't change at all. So in when, when I do biblical counseling, it's, this is really the first topic that I want to talk about is... Um, is the gospel is justification because if they're not saved, then we're ultimately wasting both of our times. You're sweeping a, a dirt floor. Yeah, sweeping a dirt floor. Um, I can give them some tips and they can try to do it, but ultimately it's not going to do any good. Um, so I spend the time, if they're not saved, I spend the time evangelizing them um, because I want them to be saved because going back to what I said before, if they're not saved, they're not going to change. The second uh, thing that I like about biblical counseling is is uh, it brings to bear the concept of sanctification. I mean, that's really what it's all about. Um, is that sanctification is how you address the issues? You know, like I said, I can give you tips about you know communication and marriage but unless you're sanctified unless you're pursuing god unless you're studying the scripture for yourself you know it it's only going to go so far it's only going to uh, achieve so much um you have to be, you have to pursue sanctification very good well thank you Brett for all of your time and all of your work and preparation and thoughtfulness into uh, this time, into this process. And so we really appreciate uh, all of your answers and, and your effort for us. And uh, we seek God's will and his purposes for us as we move forward as a church. And we uh, are just going to bring this podcast to a, a close today. It's all the time that we have for truth for today. We want to thank you for joining us. And until next time, we hope that you will grow in your love and commitment to Christ and his church as we are sanctified in the truth. God's word is truth.